One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. We're now listening to Footy Prime, the podcast, hosted by Danny DiCchio, Craig Forrest, and James Sharman. Thank you, Jeff Cole. And yes, welcome to the self-isolation edition of Footy Prime, the podcast, not to be confused with the self-immolation edition of the Footy Prime podcast. Uh, don't do that, okay? Self-isolation is very different to self Immolation. Self-immolation involves setting yourself on fire for political gain. Now, on the bright side, with self-immolation, you won't catch the coronavirus. That should protect you. But, but just don't confuse the two. There has been confusion with some of our primers. I know that. I apologize. Um, good luck with your recovery. And don't catch anything while in the burn unit. Um, but anyway, welcome to the show, everyone. Uh, no Dickio today. He's, uh, I don't know, he has some big, important conference call with Chanta FC, who knows what that's about. Hopefully it means games coming up, but uh, unlikely at the moment, of course. Um, it's been quite the week since last we spoke, uh, but I'm really excited about today's show. A couple of my favorites uh, are joining us. Uh, to start with, the man who I think is probably the best in the business at what he does. Uh, we've known him for years, good friend of us all, Arash Madani of Sports. Now, Arash, officially quarantined, having come back from spring training in Florida with uh, the Jays. Remember that, everyone? Spring training, baseball. Arash, there was actual sports happening in the world. Yeah. yeah. How are you holding up, mate? You, you haven't left the place yet, have you? You've been stuck there for, what, nine days or so? Yeah, something like that. But we had some NCA March Madness reruns on the weekend, so at least we had that to uh, to keep us going. There's something, yeah. But thanks for joining us, mate. Really appreciate it. Um, Gavin Day, who is one of those poor bastards who's not only had to cover Canadian soccer for, for much of his career, but he's worked within Canadian soccer as well. Gav, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's an honor. And right now, Gav is actually working at CP24 in the newsroom, um, in the front lines, combating this, this strange, <laughs> strange era of ours. So uh, listen, we've got these guys on for a good reason, but Arash, oh, we have to talk about, to begin with, what happened late last night, um, yeah. the Canadian Olympic team pulling out of the Tokyo Games, assuming, of course, they, they are still uh, go ahead this year, 2020, July through August. Um, you surprised by the announcement? It seems to be the only choice uh, the Canadian Association could have made. Well, the timeline was so interesting, wasn't it, James? That Sunday afternoon, the IOC came out and said, give us four more weeks. And then by that night, Canada was the first country that said, we're not sending our athletes to Tokyo 2020. Australia followed suit. And then Brazil and Slovenia have also called for a postponement. And Norway has said, we don't want our athletes going until this global crisis is under control. And so I, I can't believe that I'm saying this, uh, but 
it doesn't appear that the Olympics are going to happen this summer. And, you know, Craig and I were talking a little bit earlier. Uh, you know, he said, are the athletes upset or they got it? If it can happen next summer, then it's an altogether different conversation because a lot of these athletes still can can compete at a high level. But, man, it is – you talk about a changing world that the IOC would even – potentially relent on their billions of dollars, it's a whole new planet. You know, Arash, it's uh, disappointing and even more so for the athletes uh, that don't make money professionally as well. And the ones that, even if it was pushed back a year, what are they to do about coaching and financing and uh, getting the opportunity to get themselves ready for something that's been delayed a year or more? Yeah, it's all these questions that nobody really has answers to. I would, I would assume, Craig, that the COC, Canadian Olympic Committee, will step in. Uh, perhaps the Own the Podium program will come in with some funding. But, I mean, here we are late March, and athletes are being told, don't leave your house, stay at home. Now, if you have set yourself a quadrennial plan, a four-year plan to be a high-performance athlete, to be ready to perform at a high level – you you have a strict regimen that you are unable to do right now. So that's that's in large part, I would suspect, in addition to the safety, of why there's concern for athletes because track and field, swimming, two of the marquee sports, they still haven't even had their qualifications yet. Um, and so th- this had to get figured out sooner than later. Yeah, I mean, we talked about this uh, about two weeks ago now, but when, uh, if it did transpire that the games are cancelled, what would it mean to these athletes? And, I mean, the bottom line is it's, it's just gutting for all these these athletes who, who base their entire lives around a certain games, and especially the older ones who now might have to compete, you know, if it gets delayed a year, a year older. You know, you, you spoke to uh, Pospisil last night as well, uh, Arash, who's going to be 30, right? Now, I know yeah, that's he's not old, old. I know he's still, you know, fine, but amazing he's 30. But a lot of these athletes, you know, were at the end of their careers. This was going to be it, and a year can make an enormous difference. Yeah, and you know, Vashik has a Vashik has a different outlook on it. He's been to two Olympics before. He's thirty years old, as Craig mentioned. He's a professional, um, and he agrees with it. He says, you know, there are things much bigger than the Olympics that people have to look at. I think of somebody like Mark De Young. A lot of people don't know him. He's a canoe kayaker. He's from Halifax. He's thirty six now. He's a dad. He's got his own business on the go. He decided. You know, 10 years ago, he got a civil engineering degree from Dalhousie. He said, let's give it one more go. Let's give it one more shot. And now he's going to be 37. He's going to have to get the body ramped up again. What's what's his, what are his thoughts on this? So there are a lot of ramifications to this, from the coaching to the training to how you get your body ready to funding, that all of this has to get ironed out and sooner than later, because as we know, a year can fly by real soon in preparation for an Olympics. And Craig, I mean, we talk about Euro 2020 being delayed a year as well. Um, Ronaldo's no spring chicken anymore. He's going to be a year older. Copa America, of course, of course, next year as well, likely. Um, Messi's going to be a year older as well. From a professional athlete standpoint, and you've been there before, what, what difference can a year make for these guys who are in their, you know, early to mid 30s and beyond? Well, massively. I mean, I look at the end of my career at around 35 years of age and just how you feel. Um, not as quite as good as you did when you were 29, 24 years of age. So it's a massive difference for sure. And just the 
unexpected nature of it too and how your training regimen will have to change. And this this goes with all sports too. Um, the NHL players, the NBA players, Major League Baseball says they're going to need four weeks to get themselves prepared for the season, um, which is surprising considering baseball plays 162 games. But it's, uh, it's a difficult situation. But uh, there's other people in way worse positions, obviously – just socially out there in uh, in the real world that can't even uh, pay the bills at the moment. So for the professional athletes, I think they can handle the situation. And luckily, I, I'm fortunate in that I've always felt like complete shit, you know, whether I'm 25 or 35 or 45 now, always <laughs> feel dreadful. So uh, this is nothing new to me, but strange times for sure. I, I'm getting by on social media with you know, Liam Gallagher's hand-washing videos. Uh, you see that, that, that rugby commentator doing the play-by-play of everyday life? You know, I think we're seeing this creative upsurge right now as well in society, which I guess is something, but uh, strange times. But listen, guys, the reason why we wanted to get Arash and Gavin on today was we want to uh, help people escape from their current reality, uh, maybe help them forget, take them somewhere better, easier, you know, a simpler time. So we thought today would take you football fans back to San Pedro Sula, Honduras, October 16th, 2012. Canada against Honduras, a draw or a win, and Canada's through to the hex. Now, All that therapy uh, just went out the <laughs> seven years of going to see see that shrink just went out the window. It's what we do on this show, Rash. We make yeah. people's lives worse. Um, this team had conceded two goals in the previous five games. They, they played to a nil-nil draw in Canada against Honduras earlier. They should have won that game. Uh, no one foresaw 8-1. Gav, let's start with you, mate. Um, take it back when, when you first landed. Did, did you feel that San Pedro Sula was, was a, a feverish pit of soccer passion and this was not going to be an easy, easy uh, job by any stretch for, for the Canadian national men's team? Oh, so you're talking to me. Yeah, Gav, yeah. Sorry, cut out there for a second. No worries. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, I, uh, I, I shared the flight down with uh, Kurt Larson, who was, who was at the Toronto Sun at the time. And, uh, you know, we, we had the fear of God put in us. We knew the reputation of that part of the world, and we had no clue what to expect. I mean, it's funny that a couple months down the road when the U.S. was playing there, they had a briefing by the embassy, and they, you know, sort of had this preparation. We went in not really knowing what to expect. We just sort of booked some flights and went down. So, you know, I think we step out of the airport and job one is, or task one is to get a taxi. And they always say, make sure uh, you get a taxi that's in front of the airport. Well, what do we do? We take a right turn and we top into someone's taxi that's a little bit further down the parking queue. Um, uh, you know, so obviously we failed our first task, but uh, on the way into the hotel, we stopped at this stadium, which, looked like it had been ravaged by age but i think it's i think it was made in like 1999 it wasn't that old but it looked like it had seen some things and uh we knew right then that uh this was something different and but you know honestly did we expect what was to come absolutely not yeah craig i mean you played there before as well and and you had a chat with arash i believe just before he left for Honduras, um, back at Sportsnet on the couch. Uh, a little preparation, shall we say, for what to expect? Yeah, it was uh, interesting because me and Jerry Dobson calling the game, we didn't go down. I wasn't all that against not going down, to be honest <laughs> with you. 
so we thanks, Forrest. I appreciate yeah, we, that. Good looking out for your boy. <laughs> just toss, toss a rash down there. He'll be okay. Yeah. So I gave him a couple little, uh, you know, ideas. But until you go down and experience it yourself, it's impossible to really paint a picture exactly of what you're going to experience. And that experience for those players, and I, I look forward to what's happening in the Olymp- uh, World Cup qualifying, and the players that have had some experience going in there. Is, is good because the likes of Alfonso Davies playing in Bayern Munich and those big crowds and everything like that is nothing what he's going to be uh, seeing down there as far as the atmosphere and what's going to be happening around him. So experience doing it once or twice is, uh, puts you in a, a better position. Uh, however, it's never easy. Arash, I mean, you've, you've traveled the world covering sports, you know, various sports, various uh, questionable areas, I'm sure. How did uh, San Pedro... Uh rate compared to some of the other destinations in your career well there's a special shelf for those couple of days in honduras uh on so many levels and it didn't really hit me guys we we flew in with the team because sportsnet was broadcasting the game we actually were on the team charter back and forth and once we arrived we had our own transportation with a translator and security um to take us. So we arrived Sunday, didn't really think much of Sunday. And I believe the game was on Tuesday. But it hit me on Monday when we went to the stadium for the first time for training, what we were getting ourselves into. You arrive at a relatively new stadium that's only about 20 years old, that's already in decay. It's falling apart. And the main takeaway, just looking around, is barbed wire. And you're saying to yourself, oh, boy, uh, what what have I gotten myself into? And Craig will tell you this. The the tunnel to get out onto the pitch, the visitor's locker room is on one side of the tunnel. The home locker room is another. It's pitch black as you come down. And then comes the actual tunnel, which is a tin can. It is dark. It is dank. And you don't see anything other than one little crack where the sunlight is coming in, when you look out of this tunnel way, it's just barbed wire. And fans pound on this tin can of a tunnel, chanting Honduras, Honduras. And even the day before, I kind of looked at my cameraman, Mario Fontana, and I said, Mario, we may not get out of here alive tomorrow. <laughs> and in some ways, I just wonder if it was 8-1 the other way, it if we'd be having this conversation right now. Well, it's interesting, Arash, because we've gone down there and in Tegucigalpa and had a, uh, got a 2-2 draw. We were actually leading 2-0 to the last 15 minutes, so the referee gave two penalties late to Honduras. And How'd that happen? Exactly. How did that happen? <laughs> exactly. And uh, there was a lot of uh, incident after that, and we wondered what would have happened if we had actually ended up winning the game. And I know the referees were massively concerned the linesman was playing was lining the the line 10 yards inside the field because he was getting pelted with missiles coming from the crowd and this sort of thing just it would be shut down if it was europe uh, or most places in the world but uh concacaf has a special atmosphere especially in central america yeah gavin i mean you've, you've traveled oh. extensively with with the national team both as a as a journalist and also you know within the team as well um to various parts of south america and central america uh, were, you, were you actually really surprised by what you saw there compared to your previous experiences 
Yeah, I mean, that was the first. I've now been there four times, and it's it's a place you adapt to. I've actually, there's a, a Coca-Cola sign that sort of sits above the town. It's a good hike up, and I now have done that a couple times. It's now become a bit of a tradition, but um, yeah, I mean, you compare it to, to other places in the region, even in the region itself, which are quite comfortable. I mean, I've been to Belize and to Mexico, and they're you know, miles more orderly, but even on the match day itself, when we're trying to get to the stadium and there's just this long lineup of traffic of people trying to get out and um, there is no way to prepare for it, uh, whether you're a player or a journalist like myself, I do want to point out that uh, when Arash was doing his stand-up on the day before training, he's in a full suit and it's about 35 <laughs> degrees without the humidity and he's standing there in the middle of the field in full sun. And I think we gave him a round of a but um, so much of that lingers with you. It just sticks with you, and it's hard to forget. Uh, I'll never forget. We're sitting in our little press row just surrounded by fans. The aisles are full. Uh, it's just crammed in there. People are there four hours in advance, and off to our side is, is a soldier with an automatic weapon, and we're just going, okay, this is this is the new normal. As our, <laughs> as our Wi-Fi slowly fades as it crams in, we can't really say what's going on because – there's just no way to get it out there, but it, it's, it's, it's all your senses are appealed. As soon as you land on that plane, you get there, and it's it is a whole other world. But uh, you know, it's it's easier to say, oh, why can't Canada get results in these parts of the world? It's because it's a whole other world. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, Gavin I, I talks should, about Gavin talks about it being packed. There were thirty six thousand people in a thirty two thousand seat stadium. We were there three hours before the game chanting Honduras, Honduras. You have riot police walking the track around in groups of four with the glass shields and automatic weapons. The feeling and the heat was, you know, overwhelming. But the feeling of hostility was just remarkable. I mean, on our drive to the stadium, I felt like I was in a National Geographic documentary. There are people on the back of pickups, like eight people in the back of the wagon, some having machetes strapped to their ankles. And I'm looking around saying to myself, where am I? What is this? And it was an impromptu national holiday that day because of football, because of that match, and because of the importance for the Honduran national team. And so you get to the stadium, and under this backdrop, there's no clock in the stadium. Not only did the Wi-Fi go, but because there were so many people there, we had no data on our phones. There was no way to communicate. You know, our technical producer, bless him, Craig, you know him well, Blair Tetro. Blair comes over to me, and he puts his hands on my shoulders about an hour before the game. He said, buddy, we don't have any phone lines. We don't have a monitor. We don't have a clock. (laughs) You're just going to have to go with this. I said, okay. And if there's anybody that can make it work, it is definitely Blair. It's definitely Blair. So he had, his production truck was a minivan behind the stadium that had one wire wrapped around a banana tree, literally. And, <laughs> and that's, how, that's how we got to air. And at one point, the world feed cut out, and our camera, Mario Fontana, was literally the only camera – pitch side that was broadcasting the game back to Canada. Uh, it, it was, it was a scene unlike anything I have ever witnessed or could have even dreamed of. And Arash, 
Didn't uh, this lead directly to your month-long rehab for uh, penicillin and cocaine addiction? <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. When when we landed, we landed late on Tuesday. And on Wednesday, I remember sitting in my condo being like, what the hell just happened these last 48 hours? Dude, you're well, used to this isolation. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> yeah, no no kidding. kidding. Actually, producer Chris Black. Well, well that's, that us. sounds like the easy way, Rash. I, I, I flew home the following day, and I was projectile vomiting the whole way home. Oh, I there you go. Something, and it started hitting me oh, at the airport, and we connected in Atlanta. And upon takeoff and landing, just everything you can imagine was coming out of my stomach. And I had never puked like that in my life, but I was lying on the floor at the airport at Hartsfield Jackson Airport in Atlanta. Dan Gerard from the Toronto Star walks over. I just sort of look up. Hey, Dan, how's it going? Uh, and so I feel better about to board the second flight. And then only on takeoff and landing, it comes all over again. But fortunately, there was nothing left in my stomach. I didn't leave bed for about two days because I just didn't know what the hell was going on. But uh, that was the, that was the after image that stuck with me that very first time. Yeah, you know, Chris Black, producer Chris Black, uh, sent us a text and, and he asked us to ask uh, a rash couple of things uh, about the, the suit choice and just why yes. the hell you wore a suit. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> sports they do have lovely uh, golf shirts. I know that for a fact, uh, Arash. And also, how many beers you, you bought on the way back home? But uh, <laughs> the, the, the suit choice. I remember watching you there, and you looked. You I mean you were dying? It was obviously yes. so hot there. But why the hell did he wear a suit, mate? Uh, what did Al Pacino say in any given Sunday? I've made every mistake a grown man can make. <laughs> <laughs> but fellas, in addition to that whole scene, I think it's also important to understand the anticipation for Team Canada going in there. Mm -hmm. So they had just played Honduras, as you mentioned off the top. Nil nil. Simeon Jackson had a chance right on the doorstep at BMO. He scores that goal, which he should have. All of this is moot, but he doesn't. So... On the Sunday, we get to the to the airport, and the, the charter plane is, I don't know, an hour, an hour and a half late. That should have been the first sign something was going to go wrong. And I remember talking to Julian de Guzman, and Julian's like, listen, if we get through this, my brother's going to play. Junior Hoylet's going to play. They have all committed for the hex. This is happening. I was talking to Simeon. There, there was such an excitement there was such hope there was such a we're finally on the doorstep of history and an opportunity to do this and there was a real confidence because of what had just happened and so we get to training on monday and then monday night we did a bunch of sit downs for our broadcast and julian on camera starts telling us all this about his brother in junior hoylet and you're like oh man this is happening and stephen hart bless him said that, you know, in all his time around the national team, he has sensed a real belief with this group that they can go out and get it done, which is why when kickoff happened, I was kind of like, all right, let's see what this is all about in this hostile environment. What What is this group made of? And I guess the, the mistake was the whistle blowing to start the game because you know, from there. <laughs> I remember that, Rash. I mean, when we're doing the broadcast, it was so positive because, like you said, the confidence was running really high. Thought we could do something really special here and pull off a, a big result. Um, these things are, 
disappointing, obviously. And at that time, like you said, these other players were talking about coming on. Junior Hoylet was going to come on because he's now on the scene now. But at that time, he hadn't uh, really committed to any national. That's right. So it was difficult getting him in. So it was uh, it was it was tough doing the broadcast, calling it as the game went on, and obviously the goals were going in, and it was becoming crushing. And knowing what to say at that point when everybody's watching and just being so devastated, uh, including the players. And I remember the halftime interview, um, McKenna. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So so just before that, so it's nil nil early. Canada has a chance. Toy Santa Ricketts right there, just like Simeon the game before. And and he does, you know, he should have cashed in on the first one. Who knows what happens from there? He doesn't. And then Honduras immediately comes down, scores the first goal. And I looked over to the Canadian bench, and I can still see Stephen Hart doing this to the guys on the pitch. Just just slow down, calm down. It's all good. Hey, we got one, you know, on away goals and on 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 aggregate, a nil nil draws. You know, we're we're through. And that's when the avalanche started. You know, two, turned to three, turned to four, and then at halftime, Kevin McKenna, who was the acting captain, because don't forget, Dero was hurt. Dero didn't make the trip to Honduras, and it killed him. Uh, not to. McKenna said, hey, we just have to stop the bleeding at this point. And that's when you realized not not only was this match over, not only was this um, not only was this, this this hope of the hex over, but this entire era, McKenna... Stephen Hart, Dwayne De Rosario, this generation was done with mm. Canadian soccer. I felt for Stephen Hart too. Uh, I do for most managers who get uh, put in difficult positions like that as well. Um, a lot of it's not their fault. It's difficult uh, circumstances, and he's a terrific coach too. Glad to see him working in the Canadian Premier League. Um, fantastic opportunity for for him as well and he's a vastly experienced and great canadian uh, football coach that we uh, we should support um from the player's point of view now we look at in the future and with the team we talk about the chances that we've missed in in front of goal i think that has changed and that gives me hope for next time that we have to play in difficult places like uh san pedro sula that we have that ability to score goals and again we're at that place where we're full of confidence with this team and uh, let's hope we're not disappointed, but I think they have every chance of qualifying for 2022. I think with the squad that they have, I believe they're in the top six. Now they're not officially in the top six, which is uh, obviously important for them, but I think they're in the top six definitely with the squad that they have. Yeah. And I think it's fair to say that the squad now is obviously a lot deeper, more talented than back in 2012, but you know, you use the word hope there and that was the, the narrative that was, you know, surrounding this game all those years ago to that hope we thought wow this this team is that close to making that step a defining moment for Canadian soccer and Gavin you know we talk about you know the intimidation for the, for the media you know around this did you ever sense you know in a build up you know in, in training at the press conferences before kickoff did you ever sense the players were faltering were, were, were intimidated were about to, to drop a big one no, I mean, uh, for, for me personally, I had covered the team in the entire run-up, every single game, home and away. I had been there covering it. And it was, you know, as a freelance journalist, having seen the team in that strung out of a time, I sort of got to, to get that vibe. And there was no indication that um, something so catastrophic was about to happen. The previous month in Panama, 
when Canada had lost our uh, two nil to, to Panamanians after when, you know, when the Panamanian fans are giving us a beer bath each time Panama scored after the game, they'd all come over to us. They all pointed to us. They went you. And then they would do the throat slap gesture and say, you Honduras. And so we'd go, okay, we'll do our best. But, um, you know, yeah, coming into that, it was almost despite the atmosphere, despite the, this whole new world we were in, it, it felt like it was, just any other game and to expect that that was going to happen uh came way out of left field i know arash mentioned the the rickets chance and for half a second you think okay they're in it and then once the first goal goes in the second goal goes in and it's suddenly um you know for me personally two years of my life just sort of going up like that i can only imagine what it was like to see the players and i've actually got to duck out in a second but i'll say with one one final little anecdote when uh, Canada was down six or whatever, and uh, Ian Hume, I believe, scored the lone goal for Canada on the yeah. kick, uh, you know, there's, there's this crowd all around us, like I mentioned. Um, when the free kick, when the foul goes in, I'm sitting next to Kurt uh, Larson, and he, he stands up as the whistle goes, and he just shouts, hey! Like, all of a sudden, you know, he's just he's just joking, obviously. But you, you sort of half turn your head and think, do you know where we are? But fortunately, <laughs> the fans all around us, the soldier literally all turned, and we all just burst out laughing. Um, and, you know, from there, Hume scored. And it, it, the one consolation, but that's, uh, uh, that's another thing I won't ever forget was just sort of the what in God's name are you doing that, you know, ended up being a, a moment of levity for all the fans and for us ourselves. Gavin, Gavin story. I'm just going to jump in. Uh, just before you leave, are you on a green screen with a coffee shop background? No, that's actually the, uh, actually, uh <laughs> the cafeteria here at 299 Queen West. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, thanks, mate. Anyway, really cheers guys. That. I got to get going. Take care. Yeah. I hope we can, Talk it again soon. All right, it's Gavin Day. Uh, by the way, Kurt Larson's a complete nutter, so it doesn't surprise me at all that Kurt would do that in Honduras uh, in that moment. Um, all right, Arash, Craig mentioned the interview at halftime with Kevin McKenna. Now, I've yeah. obviously, like yourself, I've watched a thousand halftime interviews. I've conducted many myself, and they're all crap, right? They're, they're generally really pointless, pointless uh, television. I, I just they're, they're, You get nothing from the captains, from the players, ever. Except that day, and that was by far the greatest halftime interview I've ever seen. It was depressing. It was sad. I couldn't believe what I was watching because poor old Kevin McKenna was a broken man. He had given up. Um, I think what was his quote? He said, uh, "Just trying to stem the bleeding." I mean, was it we're in damage control mode. Damage now. control. That's right. Now, was it obvious to you that the players at that point had just gone, had, had fallen away, had given up? Well, I mean, they were in a complete state of shock. I mean, when you looked in Kevin McKenna's eyes, you could almost, you know, see into his soul at that point. They they didn't know what the hell had happened, how this had happened, and it almost was as if they were in quicksand out there. I mean, their defending was just abysmal in that first half, giving up the four goals. And as and as revealing as McKenna's quote was, I thought after when we got Stephen Hart on the field. He apologized to the country, and he said, you're supposed to go down all guns blazing. He said, you're supposed to go down to fight. He said, you're supposed to go out and die out there, and he said, this is on me. We were horrible. It's disturbing to me that this team fell apart. Now, fellas, I can't, 
I, I just, as James, you mentioned off the top, I just got back from spring training. I remember maybe three or four things over the two weeks there that players told me. I, I, I remember distinctly that day in San Pedro Sula, I mean, to specific details that afterwards we're waiting outside the locker room right by the bus. It's a tiny little area. The fans hadn't left. They're kind of hovering over, chanting, taunting, spitting, throwing things. And there's Julian de Guzman, who couldn't even lift his head, just saying, we embarrassed ourselves. I mean, the the overwhelming shock and shame, I would say, that those players and that coaching staff felt was palpable, and you could really feel it. Croy, yeah. you, you, you played, sorry, you, you played, obviously, we, we know your history with Canada. Mm. Um, you're watching that game. You're, you're commentating on that game. How did you feel? Were you embarrassed? Did you feel for the players? Was there any any excuse as to why they, they did that on that stage in that importance? Well, it's hard to be critical because I've been in positions where I played in Central America and been under those conditions where it's hard to explain this wave of atmosphere, your head spinning, the heat, everything's coming down on top of you and it's hard to stop the rot. And the fans in Central America, they they understand this as well as anything. They're going to make it. I mean, this is a murder capital of the world in 2012. It's still a terrible place uh, for that. Um, All these things are going through your head, and it's difficult. And basically your brain can just freeze in the moment. And I've been there, and I've seen it happen, and it happened to them. And uh, you could see just by halftime, they just could not stop it. And it was uh, difficult conditions for them. What I found really frustrating was uh, how, how the haters out there and the haters in this country, they reveled in it. They loved it. It became a big joke. Even mainstream sports coverage was, uh, it was awful. You know, um, you know, well-known broadcasters saying, oh, they've done it again. <laughs> and let's remember, James, James, let's remember, the NHL lockout was happening then. Right. There, you know, the Blue Jays, it was basically the end of the baseball postseason. The Blue Jays were long gone. At that point, there was nothing else happening. The Raptors' training camp hadn't started. The Raptors weren't what they are now anyway. But there was a real void in the entire sports calendar, kind of like now. Um, So all eyes and all attention as this run continued to build up was on this team and ultimately on this game. So suddenly it wasn't just the football media, the soccer media, the niche fans, suddenly now you're waving the flag a little bit, you're beating the chest, but the Maple Leafs... There's a platform for Canadian soccer, finally. And kerplunk. Yeah. 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 And and that's why it is... We've had a few moments like that over time, you know, we're close to qualifying for 94 and and various other competitions as well. And uh, it's, uh, it's tough. It's tough, certainly for the players who have this dream of qualifying for the World Cup and being that close. It's a it's a difficult character building situation for for all. Greg, what was what was your biggest beating? Eight nothing in Mexico City. I thought so. I saw your curly you had to bring afro. that up. I, had a, I saw your curly afro <laughs> getting all pissed. I, you know, I gotta say, I watched it on YouTube, right? I watched it last night. The, the highlights on YouTube, and and Craig, I mean, okay, a couple of those goals weren't great on you. But my God, that defending. Wow. 
Yeah, you, well, you, do you remember much about that game, or have you just trying to drink it away? Yeah, I kind of forgot about it. Um, <laughs> it was a Gold Cup, but it was the only time it was held outside of the United States, and uh, we were, we had lots of World Cup qualifying coming up, not in the too far distant uh, future. So we come off long seasons, hadn't had a break from our uh, club seasons, and Bob Lenarduzzi at that time was aware that we needed some sort of break and took the pressure off and basically went in there without any preparation whatsoever. So let's play Mexico for a, for a break? Exactly. I mean, we, we virtually did nothing as far as training goes. It was, it was basically a holiday camp. <laughs> <laughs> any more stories from that, Craig, by chance? Just to... <laughs> well, I remember Dasso, Nick Dasmich after the game, he needed uh, – IV drips and everything else. Just if you can't control the ball in Mexico City with the pollution, the altitude, and everything else, and the hundred thousand people there, you can't possess the ball, keep possession. You're going to be chasing shadows for an awful long time. So <laughs> the players did not like the experience of playing in Mexico City. I, I didn't right. mind it, even getting hammered. I mean, played there several times. I, I, I it's just this magnificent theater, uh, yes, so big, yeah. and, and with the history of the World Cup finals that have been played there in 1970 and 1986, and there's just this amazing experience. But uh, for out players running around having to breathe, a little bit different experience for them. Yeah, yeah. Craig, describe the uh, stadium. You've told me stories about that. Yeah, I mean, Azteca's got this aura around it for sure uh just the size of it itself is is eye-catching um we would come out uh you might have seen nfl games there and how the the players struggle with the altitude and the balls in play what 15 minutes or so in three hours you come up we used to come out the spiral staircase and similar to san pedro where it's dark and dingy and damp but as you come up you can hear this almost like a beehive it sounded very much like a beehive you come up and just this incredible crowd that two sections of the stadium are, are festival seating. So they're there again, three hours before kickoff, lower section, upper section. Those were the two tickets that you buy. Every aisle was packed. Um, there was no space in between. They just pack you in like that. So it's uh, it has a moat as well. Uh, <laughs> not as quite as intimidating as San Pedro Sula or Tegucigalpa or Panama City or in Guatemala City. Uh, because the moat sort of makes you gives a sense of security that there's nobody going to get over that. And then if you did, you have a barbed wire fence to get over. And if you got past that, you got military machine guns. So you you just feel more like lambs to the slaughter, if you like, uh, when you go down there. It's uh, it's quite an incredible place. And uh, like I said, I really enjoyed it, but uh, only from a, a perspective of just the history and the size, the magnitude and the popularity of the sport everywhere else. This is making me really miss sport more and more just hearing these stories. As, as awful as they are, you know, what, what sport gives us, uh, we, we're really missing. Arash, can you talk some more about that flight home? I mean, I can't imagine you've ever seen anything like it or heard anything like it. I mean, what was the, it seems a stupid question, what was the mood on the plane? But well, it was just my, quiet. It was, was quiet. Just, just, just a library, eh? just death. Yeah, for a couple hours at least, um, it was pretty quiet. So the way <laughs> the way it uh, goes on the plane is the coaches and staff kind of took up the first six or seven rows. Then there were two, three rows of nobody. Then our crew, which was myself, producer Chris Black, cameraman Mario Fontana, and technical producer Blair Tetro, we took a couple of rows. Then a few rows of nobody, and then the players in the back. And so we got to the airport. 
I went into the gift shop and it was a dry plane and we had a bunch of Honduran money left. So we bought all the Salva Vida uh, cold lagers that we could find and we <laughs> threw them into a pillowcase and brought them onto the plane. And after about an hour, uh, you know, I kind of looked at the guys, our crew, and I said, shall we? And so we kind of dug into them and we're chatting and having a couple laughs. And uh, Max Bell, who was one of Canada Soccer's PR guys, mm -hmm. came over and said, hey, guys, like, we just got our ass kicked. Can you keep it down? I looked up, and I'm sitting, and he's standing. I looked up at him. I reach into the pillowcase. I open up a beer. I hand it to him. I said, Max, when this plane lands, everyone's getting fired. So why don't you join us? And so Max is like, okay, I'll join you. And so we, you know, we told some stories. And, and had a couple chuckles. But the players, it was after, I mean, it was like a four or five-hour flight home. Uh, after a couple hours, they kind of started talking one another. But, you know, the the volume was at a murmur. And Victor Montagliani was on the plane at the time. He was the Canadian soccer president. And he came over and he just said, now do you understand what we're up against? I'm like, yeah. But Stephen Hart, um, from even before Wheels Up, was out cold. He was asleep in his chair. Exhausted. You just got the sense that mentally and physically, uh, you know, he probably hadn't slept the night before, you know, you know how coaches are, Craig, um, just beaten. And when that, when that plane landed, you just knew it was going to be a day or two where he was going to offer his resignation. And sure enough, he did. Mm -hmm. it's, it's so unfair, isn't it? For, as you mentioned there, Craig, uh, with Stephen Hart, one of the true good guys in, in Canadian football, and a really good coach and a guy that had done a really good job with that team and that squad. And he's only going to be remembered internationally at this point for that result. And given how close that team had got to qualifying for the Hex, which, as we know, in Canadian soccer circles, that doesn't happen every four years, that's for sure. Um, it, it, to me, I don't think I've had more sympathy for a football manager than I have for, for Stephen Hart in 2012. Yeah, it, exactly. Same with me as well. Um, I like to see these guys being successful. I want the national team to be successful. And, and when you see that happen, it's always disappointing, whether it's in the international level or club level. But at the same time, as a coach, Stephen Hart realizes the position that he's in. You're hired to be fired. Um, you're never going to last anywhere any particular length of time, most guys. And uh, you have to sort of move with that. And Stephen Hart did. I mean, he moved on to Trinidad and Tobago and, uh, and did a fine, fine job down there as well um, so he's got vast experience um, but it's just the reality of the position of the job you can you remember for the big games the games that really really matter and you remember, remember for your, as good as your last game and that unfortunately was a situation for him did really well up to that but it's all about uh, qualifying it's all about winning games and unfortunately that particular incident didn't, didn't work out at all for Canada and, and uh, he stood uh, it, it took a step aside unfortunately for him and he owned it. I mean, he wore it. Yeah. I mean, I'm just going through my notes right now, um, preparing for this podcast. I still kept the stuff from Honduras. His quote after the game was, all I can do is ask the fans forgiveness. I know they'll never forgive me, but on behalf of the players, forgive them. He said, it's my responsibility. And then it was Kevin McKenna, who again, <clears throat> excuse me, was the acting captain. This was his quote afterwards. He said, it was all to do with the players Stephen Hart had us well prepared for every game that we've gone into since I've been with the national team. It would be it would be a shame if they point the finger at the coach. It was all the players. We drew Honduras in Canada. We should have won this game. To come down here and lose 8-1 is devastation. 
Yeah. Enough said, right? Really? What more can you say about it? Uh, it happened, and I mean, Arash, you've you covered it, everything. You've covered it all. Where would you, you rate this as far, as far as most memorable sporting experience as a professional? Number one. Number one. Oh, man. Guys, it's seven and a half years later, and here we are in a late March day in 2020. This wasn't even the hex. This was a this was a World Cup qualifier, and I I vividly remember so many details, not of the game as much, but just everything that surrounded it, from the airport leaving to the excitement to Julian sitting there talking about his brother being committed to to playing, uh, if if they get through to the hex and the barbed wire and and the riot police, and. I swear not a month goes by where I either I don't think about it, I'm asked about it, I'm reminded of it. But June of 2014, I remember being uh, in L.A. Uh, working uh, some hockey. And I'm in the hotel room and I turn on the television. And the Netherlands are playing and out running onto the pitch is Jonathan de Guzman. And I'm like, <laughs> God damn it! I know, I know. <laughs> we, we've all had that moment, let me tell you, Rash. I remember uh, interviewing Julian. No, actually it was Jonathan uh, at, the, at the Rogers Centre there was some event and he was there and we, we got together and had a camera there. And that's, and again, he said, yeah, I'm going to, I'm really leaning towards playing for Canada now. Boom, blows up. The whole football world blows up in Canada. Fantastic. And then, like you said, a year later, and he's wearing uh, Laronia's colors. And it's, wow, what could have been, I suppose. But here we are now in 2020 and we've got a, a young superstar in our midst, maybe two young superstars in our midst. Canadian soccer's going places and going places quickly right now. And, like Craig said, 2022 is possible. Almost certainly through automatic qualification four years after that, there will be a Canadian team at a World Cup. So we're making progress. I guess you've got to go through these things to really appreciate the good, right? The, the yin and the yangs. But uh, it is one of those defining moments in Canadian sports history. And I think that's what's, what's as, as painful as it was. Canadian soccer got discuss, discussed more than ever before. Right, and perhaps it made us more in the mainstream than perhaps we'd been mm-hmm. up until that point. I mean, it would really, be... make for a great thirty for thirty one day. Oh, whatever, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, when we're looking forward to this next qualification too, and we got two thousand twenty six, which will more than likely get an automatic spot for. It'd be so nice to be able to qualify by right before that, as far as getting you know, instead of getting just the gift of hosting the World Cup. And uh, that would give us a, a lot more credibility going into it as well. So, and I really do think that we do have that possibility. And we talk about coaches. I remember Ancelotti saying to a, an opposition coach prior to the players walking out, saying that it's interesting this position, the job that we're in, is that our lives, our futures rely on the players that are going out on the field. Once they enter the white lines, those coaches are very, uh, for the most part, you've done your job, you put them out there, and whatever happens and how those players deal with that situation, your future will rely on it. And sometimes it's, uh, it doesn't always work out for managers. For sure. For sure. Well, uh, we're almost out of time here, fellas. Uh, Rash, I want to get your thoughts very quickly on, on sport right now. And obviously a lot of these leagues are saying they'll do all they can to finish their seasons. Even if that means empty stadiums, um, are you a proponent of finishing these things one way or the other, even if it means playing in front of empty stadiums? No, I'm not, and I would be stunned if there is going to be a Stanley Cup or an NBA yeah. champion this year. Uh, I, I even wonder if if baseball um, can can have a World Series champion this year. 
I guess maybe if you have a 4th of July start, you play 80 games and get to a playoffs. Um, but that's why the Olympics can't go. In addition to the safety and whatever, the, the, these athletes, these people, it's it's about uniting people. It's about uniting communities. And for the Olympians, it's about a family and a community that, that has been part of the journey of, of those people. I think the priority can't be sport right now. The priority mm-hmm. just has to be getting this right. And until then, if it means sports taking a backseat for six months or whatever, then so be it. Yeah, let's face it, guys. I mean, we're in a position over the next few days uh, of a real turning point potentially in Canada with this virus. And if we take it really seriously and we do the right things, we don't group around like we're seeing in some areas, um, these corona idiots, um, we could uh, we could do some big things and actually turn it and sort of flatten the curve, which is obviously what everybody's trying to do here in this difficult time. There's some yep. real yep. insight uh, Arash with uh, the Olympics. There are, you know, there's sports that like golf and tennis, these guys are professionals. They're always going to be good as far as getting ready for a tournament. Mm-hmm. But then there's these athletes who have once every four years have an opportunity. And, you know, for track athletes, the paddlers, the divers, they're building up to that fourth year. Sure. And it's, I, I can't imagine the devastation your whole life all of a sudden not having gymnasts. All of a sudden you go through a growth spurt. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it doesn't, it, it, you'll never get it back. I hear you. I hear you. But at what cost? No, I agree. I'm just, it, it's so different for a professional athlete compared to one of these real amateurs. You're right, but I guess Olympic-wise, you're right. I mean, delaying a year, which is the right thing to do, will, will cost a lot of uh, athletes their, their chance on that stage. But it will also open the door for a lot of athletes to get the opportunity as well a year from now who perhaps aren't quite ready just now. So you can look at it that way. The biggest victim out of all this is obviously uh, Liverpool Football Club. <laughs> um, I will be punching holes in walls if this goes the way I think it might go. I understand. I get it. It's probably the right thing, but my God, if if those of, those of us who understand sport and understand football and what the Premier League means and what those clubs mean to those cities, that is going to be devastating for a lot of fans. But it's all comparative, right? Listen, there's more important things we understand that. But for Christ's sakes, 30 years, really? <laughs> really? <laughs> hey, Charms, I can't <laughs> wait till Pep holds up the trophy because uh, I mean, oh, I know, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, you know, I don't know what they're going to do, but there's absolutely no way they can do that to Liverpool. No, no. I think, listen, we'll, 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 see, worst case scenario, but they'll, they'll say, hey, it's yours. We'll end the season now. It's, you know, the standings are as they are, or there'll be no relegation, but you are champions, I suppose. But it's not the same, right? It's, it's that moment to lift that trophy in front of the fans they're missing out on. And uh, yes, it's sport. Yes, there's more important things, but that still is still a, a real disappointment for a lot of people out there. Oh, you got to imagine Klopp behind closed doors. You know, one of the greatest seasons ever they're having at this moment. They only lost the first game recently this season. And to have this lingering over their heads. <laughs> I guess the flip side, though, the flip side, Craig, the, uh, the blue half will be having a great time, loving it, partying, right? So, 
Yeah, there's that. There is that. <laughs> yeah, it's not quite as nasty that uh, the no, it's not. It's not. There's some others, of course, but yeah, it's it's a tough situation. And, and you know, and there's lots of other things. So you think of promotion, uh, playoffs, relegation. Mm-hmm. Who's in those spots? How can you possibly relegate a side on not playing the full 38 games? Yeah. Maybe you don't. Maybe you play with uh, 22, 23 teams next season, right? That's been discussed. Um, you promote from the league championship, but you don't relegate. I don't know. There's lots to work out. Um, Arash, your Vikes might see some action at least this this coming year, which is something yeah, I suppose. Maybe it's better for the NFL season not to happen. Kirk Cousins <laughs> is the Vikings quarterback. <laughs> maybe, maybe. All right, fellas, listen, uh, thank you so much for doing this. Listen, there's always challenges when we're trying to do it, you know, online. It's our first time doing this, but we hope you enjoyed that. Uh, we'll continue as long as we can, and before you know it, we'll be back in person. Arash Madani, thanks so much for doing this, mate. Uh, well, another four or five more days, and you can go for a nice walk. That's there you right. go. Something to look forward to. <laughs> Let me oh, know. Good to see you guys around. again, man. Let me We're know around. if you need anything. I'll bring it down. <laughs> yeah. Happy okay, birthday, thank you, Greg. Greg. Happy, Happy birthday, birthday Jeff. Jeff. Thanks, boys. If you need a, a pie subscription delivered to your door, Arash, let me know, okay? I know a guy. Okay. Just so I'm saying. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> hey, what, hey, Charms, what's with that? Anyway, well, I was your first customer. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. you should bring the pies to the office. I've told you how many times, if you go online and subscribe, I will deliver them to you. Yeah, I know. But what happens, to, I just thought it might be a little, just a little bit of, you know, personal what? service. The first but, customer and everything. Now I got to go online. Oh, yeah. Well, what else are you doing for Christ's sake? I know you're online a lot right now. <laughs> Right. Get, off, get off Pornhub and come to the shamansproper.ca, okay? Jesus what? Christ. What hub? <laughs> I'm trying to finish Pornhub. Outstanding. I got to watch this it. podcast more often. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, yeah. All right. So, uh, yeah, we'll be back uh, hopefully next week if we're all still alive. But uh, everyone out there, take care and uh, cheers for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 